World War II. It's known as the greatest generation. And these are their stories. It's the World War II Project. This is the Americhicks with your host, Kim Munson. Hey, welcome to the AmeriChicks with Kim Munson, the World War II Project. Uh, be sure and check out my website, AmeriChicks.com. All of our shows are archived there, and I am the AmeriChicks on Facebook and Twitter as well. I am thrilled and honored to have on the line with me Richard Manchester. He is a World War II veteran. He served in Company K, the 4th Battalion, 345th Regiment. Do I have that right, Dick? That, that's correct. Yeah, it was... Uh, the, the, uh, and that's absolutely right. Well, we are going to do your interview in two parts. So uh, all of you listeners out there, you will hear the first half of the story today, and then you will hear the next half of the story next week. Uh, Dick, you actually have published your memoirs, which they are fascinating. And where can people find those? Well, <laughs> You went to the 87th Division website. That's exactly right. Yeah, and uh, anybody could uh, go to that website and download them if they wished. I would highly recommend it because these are personal stories of what was actually happening uh, on the ground. So, first of all, you were in the European theater, uh, right, Dick? Uh, That's correct. Okay, and where were you when you heard that Pearl Harbor had been bombed? When I when I heard that Pearl Harbor had been bombed, I was with my my friends uh, on a Sunday afternoon uh, in the t- small town of Hollidaysburg, Pennsylvania. And what? And uh, oh, we had we had been playing uh, softball, and uh, because the weather was pretty decent, and so I came home and <clears throat> my parents had the, the uh, radio on and. Uh, of course, I was woo. I was knocked flat <laughs> emotionally mm-hmm. to, to find out that Pearl Harbor had been bombed. Well, and uh, anything, any other emotions that went through your your heart at that time? Uh, no, I, I I think I was I, I was so stunned uh, because I couldn't grasp the enormity of it um, at the time, and uh, I just thought, oh. My God, what's going to happen next? And I don't know that uh, my emotions ranged any further than that. Uh, This was in 1940. um, And so in 1940, I would have been, uh, well, 19 years old. 1941, right? Excuse me, 1941. Mm -hmm. Uh, I would have been uh, 16 years old. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay, so you went ahead, though, and you graduated from high school and then joined the I service. Did. Is that right? That, that's right. I, I volunteered for the Army. Okay. Well, what happened after you volunteered? Uh, after I volunteered, uh, I was notified that I could uh, join the uh, what was known at that time as Army Specialized Training Program or ASTP, and I won't take up a lot of time talking about it, but if you passed a 
certain requirements, uh, engineering uh, requirements, study requirements, then uh, there was a possibility that after you took primary training, your basic training, uh, you'd be assigned to a college or university uh, to take um, engineering studies for two years. And this was open to uh, not only uh, people who had, had just joined the, the Army, but it was also open to people who had been in the Army for some time, as long as you uh, qualified through testing. Okay. So you're in the Army, and you join the Army and Specialized then, Training. Okay, go ahead. Right. And uh, we take basic training uh, at... Um, Oh, I can't think of the name of the uh, the Army base right now. Uh, it might come to me later. Uh, but after basic training... Uh, Fort Benning, uh, I think that's what you had in... Uh, it was Fort Benning. Thank okay, you very okay. much. Uh, uh, I was assigned uh, to Clemson, at that time, Clemson A&M, uh, and, and, and for engineering studies. Okay. And... Uh, the Army discovered what they really needed were infantry replacements. Uh-huh. I would say within uh, roughly uh, five weeks of activity, uh, the program closed down, and uh, 135,000 young men were assigned as replacements to infantry divisions that were stocking up to go overseas. Boy, Dick, what went through your mind when there was this change? Oh, Kim, I would say uh, by that time, uh, you just sort of shrugged your shoulders and said, well, that's it. Okay. Uh, And you just carried on from there because there was no argument of any kind. The program had disappeared. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's just take it from when you were stateside till you got over to Europe. What was that trip like? Uh, well, uh, we you mean after after we trained, right? Oh, well, after we trained, uh, uh, at, give me the, what's the name of that fort? My God. Uh, well, anyway, it's it's outside of Columbia, South Carolina. Okay. Uh, we we did. Uh, I joined the 87th Infantry Division there. Okay. Okay. And uh, after we had trained for approximately eight months, uh, we went up to uh, New York, and uh, we got on the Queen Mary. Excuse me, the Queen Elizabeth. And we were headed for Europe. Wow! And how long that was? How long was that trip? Uh, it was actually um, we went unescorted. Oh my uh, gosh! Yeah, because uh, the Queen Elizabeth, as well as the Queen Mary, uh, could make thirty knots, and there were no uh, convoy ships that could keep up with us. Wow. So we went by ourselves and that was that was pretty routine. Okay. And the the um, the trip took about 5 days and uh, we uh ended up by landing in Scotland. Uh, and we debarked there. Um immediately uh 
were picked up by trains, and uh, our particular company uh, ended up in the small town of Leek, L-E-E-K, about 20 miles uh, outside of the town of Manchester. So Dick Manchester was not very far from Manchester, huh? Manchester, <laughs> right. Okay, how long were you there? Now, your memoirs, where people can find those at the 87th Division website, and I would encourage you to do so. They start with the first day of combat. You're, you're now over in Europe. What happens in between your time frame now and your first day of combat? Is there anything else that you would like to share with everyone? thing that I could do, say uh, about that is uh, the the eve of Thanksgiving Day uh, of 40, 1944, uh, we suddenly packed up and we left the, the encampment at Leek uh, that night uh, and went down to Southampton and uh, loaded on channel boats and uh, by the, uh, I would say that by the 26th or 20, 26th of December, uh, we were unloading at the uh, port of Le Havre mm-hmm. across the channel, and uh, from there uh, we now, marched. Just a question, up. I just for clarification, oh, was me. that the Sorry. was that the 26th of November or the 26th of December when you were unloading? Oh, we were, it was the 26th of November. Okay, of November. Okay. Got it, got it, got it. And one other thing I I forgot to mention is that you were in the communications section of company headquarters. So I think that's important that that people understand that. Okay, so this gets us pretty darn close to the first day of combat where we start with your memoirs. And uh, the first thing as I was reading this, Dick is just thinking about you guys uh, getting off of the landing craft, that it is heaving alongside the hull in these these long harbor swells at La Harve. And you said you were instructed to leap into the boat as it fell in the trough. What was going through your mind? I cannot even imagine. Well, the first thing that went through your mind was... Uh, we we went overboard over the side, uh, hanging on to cargo nets. Uh, and what we were told was, when you get down to the the LCI, the landing craft infantry, okay. uh, when you drop into that boat, uh, you want to make sure that when you let go of the cargo net, that the boat it is is not on an upswell because you might break your legs. Wow. So everybody was down there looking to see, ooh, is the swell going down? Should I let go? And that's how we unloaded and uh, ended up in the uh, small town of uh, Saint-Saëns. Okay. Okay. And you said... Outside of Le Havre. Okay. And the weather was miserable, yes? Oh. We were in that... We were in a small apple orchard outside of Saint-Saëns. I'm going to say it was about a week to ten days, and it rained. And everyone I've spoken to, every veteran I've spoken to, uh, who uh, was who debarked the same way, went to that orchard in Saint-Saëns, and it rained. 
and I never heard anybody say that they had to bivouac at Sansaw, and it didn't rain. So that's just a little aside. It was just so miserable, so soggy. Oh, but, my gosh. I, you know, to, to be wet and cold, that is just just miserable. Right. Well, finally, we... Uh, we got on to, we, we were picked up uh, by a, a French railroad uh, car and train, uh, and we rode in what were known as 40 and 8 uh, cars. Uh, these were World War I vintage cars, uh, and uh, it, 40, they carried 40 men or 8 horses. Okay. And 40 and 8 became uh, f- famous as a phrase even in World War One. So we were in these small box cars, and the engineer kept getting lost. <laughs> well, that's and, inconvenient. <laughs> and uh, we rode, it had to be three or four days. At one time, the train stopped, and we were in, we were in Paris at one of the large railroad stations. And we got out and looked around and said, this is Paris. What are we doing here? Oh, my gosh. That is astounding. Well, so the next story that you you have is uh, something regarding the Calvados, the French brandy. And when I was uh, in Normandy a, a couple of years ago, well, I guess it was 2016, uh-huh. Uh, one of the French families that we were with, because uh, they they still revere you guys. They invited us in for for dinner, and the scalvados is something that the French really like. And the family where we were at, they said that the people that lived there during World War II had hidden all of of the calvados. But the minute uh-huh. the Americans got there, they brought it out. So tell us a little bit about when you guys had the calvados. Okay. Well, finally the train got to, got to. Um, uh, the, the the destination, um, and I, I have to think about that for just a moment. It was was it around uh, Metz? Metz, it was Metz. Thank mm-hmm. you. Um, it got to Metz. We unloaded, and we got organized, and we were told and that our regiment, and it was only our regiment, had been assigned to. Uh, storm and take the last of five forts that surrounded uh, Metz. And uh, I think it was Fort Driant. And so everybody thought, oh my God, we're going to have to try to take this fort. And as luck would have it, uh, just as we got organized, uh, the Germans surrendered that fort. Okay. Uh, then came the rains, and it, it rained that night, and troops were getting out of hand. Uh, they they had discovered the Calvados, uh, and so they they started uh, roaming around this small town. I don't even remember what the name of the town was, or if it even had a town, or if it was just part of Metz. Uh, and I, re- I remember that um, one of our two Navajo soldiers, uh, he didn't handle his Calvados very well. Uh, he, uh, he got obstreperous. And when 
one of the sergeants uh, started to reprimand him for uh, being, well, let's say, drunk. Uh, he he flung his M1 in the gutter and started to take a leak on it. <laughs> How'd that, that work out? Of, yeah, that sort of, <laughs> that sort of characterized what happens when troops get loose and they don't have any particular uh, duty or requirement, and you can get Calvados everywhere. Uh, I don't know where the Calvados was coming from unless it was uh, given to our troops by people, by the French people. Probably because they were so excited to see you. And uh, were you guys hungry much when you were there? Uh, no, I I would say we weren't. Um, I, I, by that, by the time uh, we had uh, gotten into the boxcars uh, and and then on to Mets, I would say we just got used to uh, um, our cooks came up with. Okay. okay. Uh, you know, and and then to supplement that, we we had. Uh, uh, usually rations, either C rations or, or K rations. Okay. Uh, yeah, it, it it wasn't anything to um, that you'd write a, write home about, as far as food was concerned. But it was certainly adequate. Okay. Okay. Now, at this point, uh, Dick Manchester, World War II veteran, have you engaged the enemy? Have you been in battle yet? No, we haven't. Okay. So as we uh, as we go along here. Uh, you said that you uh, were going along a barren, hilly area, patch of woods. You climbed out of the right. trucks near Metz. You noticed an overturned Jeep. Take that story from there. All right. Uh, uh, after spending a few days uh, at Metz, uh, we, uh, we got into uh, our trucks, and uh, we went, I think... Uh, the Saar Basin is probably about 20 miles, perhaps a little further than that, from Metz. Uh, and it is a, it's called the Saar Basin, and it is a place of, of uh, bare rolling hills uh, with little copses of woods uh, on, on the tops, uh, on the top of the hills. And as far as the, the we were concerned, uh, every little uh, outcrop of woods there uh, probably had a German machine gun or tank located. Uh, it was a very, very bad place. Okay, and, and this is probably your first experience to actually realize that you know this is this is the real deal that there there is death that's possibly lurking around the corner. Um, go ahead and explain that. Uh, well, our company assembled behind um, a little screen of woods, and then we started toward our objective. And we 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 walked along a ridge, and on that ridge there was a line of foxholes. Every one of them occupied by uh, a soldier that we were relieving. And at the last foxhole, there was 
nobody standing watching us. There was just simply a rifle which had been impaled in the ground by its bayonet, and there was a helmet on the top. Oh, my gosh. I, I got to think that would take your, your breath away, Dick. It did. You looked at that and thought, uh-oh. Yeah, yeah, most likely. Hey, Dick, we're going to go to break. Uh, before we do that, though, this is Kim Munson with the AmeriChicks World War II Project talking with Dick Manchester, who was uh, uh, just a young man in World War II. And um, uh, before we do that, though, uh, my story with Hooters Restaurants is a story of liberty, free markets, and the conservatarian perspective. It stems from a time when I served as city councilwoman in Lone Tree. And if you're interested in learning more about the story, email me at kimandamerichicks.com. And I love sports, individuals that are working hard to be the best they can be to compete and win or lose. And Hooters Restaurants is my sports headquarters. Uh, The Nuggets and the Avs are playing, and March Madness is right around the corner. And as a KU basketball fan, I love March Madness. Uh, So Hooters is the place to watch the games. Specials start at $10 for a draft and 10 boneless wings. And did you know that Hooters wings can fly? You can have them delivered right to your front door. So when the girls come over on Wednesday nights, I order Hooters new smoked wings. They're delicious and only half the calories. The girls love them. So order your Hooters wings to go or have them delivered right to your front door. More information, visit HootersColorado.com. That's HootersColorado.com and let them know that you know the AmeriChicks. We're going to go to break. When we come back, we will be talking with Dick Manchester, World War II veteran. Hey, welcome back to the AmeriChicks with our World War II project. I'm Kim Munson. I'm thrilled to have on the line with me World War II veteran Dick Manchester. Be sure to check out my website, AmeriChicks.com. That is where I am on Facebook and Twitter as well. And all of these shows are archived there. Uh, Dick Manchester, it is uh, just such an honor to be uh, talking with you today. Uh, you were, uh, let's see, got to get my notes here. So the Company K, 4th Battalion, 345th Regiment, and the 87th Division. And that's where people can find this complete story is the 87th Division website. And it is fascinating reading. Uh, so let's go ahead and, and go on from where you were. You said that uh, you were on this ridge. Uh, there were foxholes there. You were re- going to be relieving the guys, or the guys in those foxholes were going to be relieved with replacements. The last foxhole, right. there was a bayonet that was stuck in the ground uh, from the M1 rifle with a helmet on that that took your breath away. So what happens after that, Dick Manchester? <clears throat> we silently looked at this uh, Standard mark of uh, the fact that there was a there was a dead soldier in that uh, foxhole, uh, and shortly thereafter, the 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 end of the ridge uh, came, and we peeled off the ridge to our left and started down a long slope to a, a shallow valley. That's when the 88s opened up. And uh, we ran, and we ran. Uh, And at one point, I saw that Don McCabe, who was uh, our other Navajo soldier, uh, dove to the ground, and the angle between his uh, right arm and leg, an 88 shell landed, and I said, oh, my God, uh, they got done. And he jumped up and ran on. Uh-huh. It, it was incredible. Oh, my God. So we meet, we, we gained the, uh, we gained the, the shallow valley, 
uh, with no loss of life or even men being wounded. It was just uh, kind of incredible. Mm-hmm. Then we we reorganized down there and found out that our next objective was a uh, a hillock uh, in front of us. Uh, you would have to to reach that. Uh, you would have to come out of the shallow valley, go up over, and start up a rather substantial field, um, and the objective being the copse of woods. Okay. That's where the machine gun was. Okay. And our our men, untested now, Left, left the shallow valley, uh, started up the uh, the mildly sloping ground, and the machine gun opened up, and the first person killed was the platoon sergeant, uh, who had just exclaimed, and this is what I was told, that they can't kill me. And that was the last thing he ever said. Aww. And <clears throat> then uh, the uh, and I was not with them. I was behind in the valley uh, with the other company headquarters people. Uh, and the next thing was uh, our men broke and started to run back uh, because they thought they heard tanks. Wow. So they were flooding down. <laughs> To where our our position was, and we could only look at each other and think: Should we run or should we stay here? Fortunately, Colonel Leach, who was the assistant uh, regimental commander, uh, came on the scene, and he was able to uh, stop the the men from uh, from retreating. Okay. And we settled down. There was no further attack that that afternoon. Were, were you scared? I was. Uh, I would say I was puzzled more than scared. Uh, I thought I don't want to run um, because and we who had remained behind, uh, we weren't quite sure what the situation was, and uh, none of the fellows. <clears throat> Uh, who were with company headquarters and the uh, and and the other platoons? Uh, they didn't move because they they didn't hear anything, except you could have heard a gunfire uh, as the, um, the the third platoon uh, had been trying to advance. Okay. Well, yeah. and one of the things as I'm reading your memoirs, uh, Dick Manchester, is cold. Uh, you know, I think there's nothing That's more miserable cold. than cold feet. And throughout your memoirs, you talk about the cold. So explain that a little bit. Anybody, everybody, everybody who was in uh, France in the wintertime or in the Battle of the Boats talked about how cold it was. And the the weather had been fairly mild, uh, but that night it turned cold. Uh, Men had, uh, under stress, had emptied their canteens 
and there was nobody there to fill canteens. Uh, so not only that, you were desperately uh, uh, dry and, uh, and thirsty, but there was there was nothing to drink. Uh, and of course, by that time we had we had dug some foxholes, so we spent the rest of the night in foxholes. Uh, and of course, uh, our your feet got cold, but you get used to that. Mm-hmm. But that was our that was our really our first taste of what the winter was going to be like. Well, and you said that there's something again about this voice that you heard in the darkness, which, as I read that, it took my breath away. Yes, uh, we were told we had to stay in our foxholes. That we that we could be shot if we got up and roamed around, and we could hear a wounded man who was who was outside, probably wounded in that initial attack in the after, late afternoon, calling for his mother, and we couldn't do anything. Uh, we couldn't go out to them uh, because we were told we weren't allowed to leave our foxholes. And so he eventually, uh, I presume he died because he stopped calling. That's that's just uh, takes my breath away on that. The, the cost of the human cost of war. I don't think that I, I really sometimes, Dick, don't think that uh, my generation and the, and the younger generation just understand uh, what what you guys went through to stand up against tyranny and evil, and um, it just like I say, it takes my breath away. So from there, uh, you said you took a little additional uh, shell fire, but you stayed near your foxholes. Um, right. Yes, we stayed in that shallow valley. I would say for maybe two or three days. Uh, we uh, the company made no further attacks. Uh, uh, we we did see something uh, a, a a German uh, Messerschmitt 109 uh, flew over the valley and uh, any aircraft the any aircraft fire came from what was called a a, a quad 50 which is um, four 50 caliber machine guns mounted on on one structure, and that's an anti-aircraft uh, weapon. And uh, darned if they didn't get the ME-109, and we could see smoke coming out of him, and he disappeared over one of the hillsides. So we can presume that uh, if they did shoot that plane down, uh, then, the, then the next day, uh, one of our own planes came over, uh, a, a a P-51 uh, looks uh, a little bit shaped like an ME-109, which is, was the German plane. And they opened up on our own plane. Uh, and I thought, oh, my God, they're going to get him. And he did all kind of acrobatics for a few minutes to try to escape the fire. And he did get away clean, as far as I could see. Uh, <laughs> And uh, and I don't know whether it was from his plane or another plane. Um, 
but they carried uh, spare fuel tanks underneath to give them to give the uh, the P-51s uh, a greater range. Uh, I was, so I was standing in my foxhole, and I heard a whooshing sound behind me and above, and I thought, what is that? And before I could move, uh, a spare fuel tank sailed over my head and landed about, I don't know, 15 feet in front of me. Oh, my gosh. And I, I thought, God, <laughs> that's a new way you could get killed in this war. <laughs> hadn't, hadn't thought of you that one, huh? By, by a spare fuel tank. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And just the last thing in this first of your five memoirs, uh, tell us about your friend Dick Steck uh, and going to flamethrower school. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, we made, uh, just very briefly, uh, our, uh, our company was moved around the battlefield, uh, generally in support. Uh, so our, uh, our casualties from then on were, were very light, and we didn't face much fire. Uh, but my buddy Dick Steck who was the bravest little guy I ever knew. Uh, he was notified he was going to go to flamethrower school. And I said, flamethrower? My God. He was supposed that would make him, uh, he would be qualified, if that's the right word, to go up and try to use a flamethrower against enemy entrenchments. And I said, wow. I said, ah. I I, 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 I I don't know how you're going to do this. And thank goodness the next day we were notified, at least for Dick, we were notified that uh, uh, the uh, of, of the Battle of the Bulge and that we were going to be uh, packing up and heading north. Okay, so so Dick didn't have to go to flamethrower school. He didn't have to go to flamethrower uh, school. Okay, well, now I'm talking with Dick Manchester, World War II veteran, Company K, 4th Battalion, 345th Regiment, 87th Division. Be sure and check out the website, 87th Division website, because his memoirs are there and they are fascinating reading. And so let's let's now move over to the Battle of the Bulge. You now have been notified yeah. you're going to the Battle of the Bulge. And uh, so you were pulled out of the Sar Basin on December 23rd, yep. and you said it was cold. So uh, this next story that you have in there is, again, another one that took my breath away. So uh, you said it was very barren place with copses of woods. Take it from there, Dick Manchester. Um. Are you referring to um, uh, where you, what happened? Where you came up on the uh, the, the uh, German foot soldiers? The Germans. You said uh, you said that they um, they had been killed. Let's see here. You, it was cold, barren place with copses of woods, concealing enemy machine gun emplacements and tanks, deadly for foot soldiers, and. Um, you know what, maybe I'm a little bit ahead of myself then on this. So let's go ahead and take it from there. You said enlisted men usually don't know exactly where they are or the tactical plan. They just go forward. Uh, oh, this is this is after we arrive in Belgium, I, I presume. Okay. And, uh, yeah, probably. 
and uh, this is in your memoirs, Part Two, The Bulge. You said you climbed right. onto big flatbed uh, stake body trucks, and you had to sit or lie down, and you covered up with a, a blanket, and as a result of stress, everybody was having uh, diarrhea. I bet that was yeah, pretty, it, pretty rough. Yeah, it was sanitation and, and stress, and uh, that is the the soldier's um, enemy. Uh, it, everybody has it. Uh, and there's nothing you can do about it except relieve yourself. Mm-hmm. So on these big flatbed trucks, as soon as uh, and these convoys stretch for hundreds of miles, um, if they stopped, everybody threw up the, the canvas cover, jumped off the truck, went to a ditch, pulled their pants down, relieved themselves, and... Uh, made sure that they got back on the truck before it left. Wow. And that went on for, I'm going to say, probably uh, close to 100 miles. Wow. That is amazing. Yeah. Oh. So uh, uh, we, uh, we eventually uh, uh, did get to uh, uh, up to Belgium. Okay. But the, you went via Bastogne, right? You said there was another long, cold journey. Yes. We, uh, uh, we were, we were uh, when, we, when we got to the, uh, we were in the uh, 3rd Army, and that was Patton's 3rd Army. And the only thing with, with being in the 3rd Army, you were expected to move forward all the time. Mm-hmm. But we oh, we arrived um, uh, in the darkness. We unloaded from the trucks in darkness. <clears throat> we weren't sure um, that we knew exactly where we were. Um, we figured we must be somewhere near Bastogne, and uh, we formed up and we just started walking north. Uh, and again, and, it was cold, right? And it was cold. It was always cold. Uh, and in some of and, the things you've said that you were trudging through knee-deep snow, what was the case there? Uh, well, oh, I, I guess I didn't mention the snow because it was it was uh, it was so prevalent. It was just always there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it didn't make any difference if you were. Uh, out of the forest, uh, in the forest, there was always snow. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we started trudging uh, north, and we finally got to a place uh, where uh, there was. Uh, we were headed. Actually, our uh, objective was a town called Morsi, M-O-I-R-C-Y, and. Uh, uh, as we got toward Morsi, uh, we came on a small farmyard, and um, we just kind of stopped to organize ourselves. By this time, um, our, our company commander, uh, Captain Dahl, had lost his gloves, and so he was wearing the asbestos gloves that mortarmen usually wear because the, the mortar tube gets hot. <laughs> and so um, we're standing in the courtyard, 
and we're forming up to go up a road through the woods. And uh, suddenly, uh, several men from the 28th Division uh, come down that road, and uh, the 28th Division had been on the front lines when the Battle of the Bulge broke. And they had they were they had been routed by the Germans, and they were still running. Uh, although reaching our lines, they would have been okay. So they told us they were being pursued by Germans on this road. So we thought, well, here we go. Uh, we're going to have to uh, face these Germans. And just as we were ready to take off. A P-47 American plane swooped down and dropped a 500-pound bomb on that road, uh, and that was the end of the Germans. Wow. Okay. Hey, Dick Manchester, we need to go to break. Uh, Let's continue on with your story here. Absolutely fascinating. This is Kim Munson with the AmeriChicks World War II Project talking with Dick Manchester. Uh, World War II veteran about his time. We're at the Battle of the Bulge right now. Uh, We'll be right back. Welcome back to the AmeriChicks World War II Project with Kim Munson. Be sure and check out my website, AmeriChicks.com. That is where I am on Facebook and Twitter as well. Uh, This show precipitated from a trip that I took with a a group that took four D-Day veterans back to Normandy in 2016 to celebrate uh, D-Day and came back realizing how important it is to to capture these stories. So thrilled to have on the line with me today Dick Manchester. He was just a young kid, Company K, 4th Battalion, 345th Regiment, the 87th Division. Be sure and check out the 87th Division website because all of Dick's memoirs are there. But we are now talking with him about his experience, uh, Battle of the Bulge, and uh, you're now near a town, Morsi. Now, is Morsi in Belgium, or is that Morsi in France? Morsi is in Belgium. Okay. And it is one of uh, three three towns uh, that uh, are, are, are key to um, defending a, a crossroads, which in itself... It's part of a supply route uh, that the Germans would use uh, to try to break the, the the line at Bastogne. Okay, so this was a real critical place to be. It was indeed. Um, control of that crossroads was extremely important. Um, the, the plane, the the mission of the. 87th Division uh, was to keep the road open, uh, I mean, to to keep the road uh, blocked from the Germans attacking the the Americans uh, at Bastogne. And uh, uh, there was the 87th Division, and uh, there was the 18th Airborne Division. Okay. Was next to us, and uh, we were sort of the the, the western defense uh, outside of Bastogne, um, and that controlling that particular crossroads uh, was very important. So um, there was a uh, uh, there were there were all kinds of battles there by different elements 
of the 87th Division. Um, one part of the 87th Division attempted to take the crossroads, and they had a they had several uh, tanks with them, but all the tanks were not, the the three tanks were knocked out before they could have uh, uh, done anything at all, and they were just simply abandoned in this snowy field for the rest of the of the Battle of Bastogne. Uh, one of the uh, key small towns, um, again referring to the crossroads, the, what was known as the Bloody Crossroads, uh, and just as an aside, there is a small monument there identifying it as um, the Bloody Crossroads and the part of the 87th Division uh, to defend it. Uh, in the, in, there was a small town of Bonnaroo that was just north uh, but with, in a commanding uh, position uh, to, uh, to control the, the crossroads. And the Germans had lost it, and uh, they were determined to get it back. And there was a night attack on Bonnaroo. Uh, and uh, unknown to me, uh, uh, my, one of my classmates uh, was with the um, the Company D of the of, of our regiment, and he was a machine gunner. Uh, and, and he he did what he could in this night attack, and finally he ran out of ammunition, and so he tried to slip out of the. The, the, the burning building that he was in and went over to another building that he thought was unoccupied and he was a German prisoner for the rest of the war. But he did survive the war? He survived the war and I did not know that he had been there till the war was over and I saw him at one of the 87th Division reunions. Wow. And here, he was a classmate of mine. That is astounding. That is astounding. So, uh, uh, the there were attacks and counterattacks. And finally, uh, uh, we were given an... Uh, uh, there was another town that was, that was closer to Bastogne uh, that was a key to it. And... Uh, it was the town of Tillet, T-I-L-L-E-T. And uh, oh, one of the other companies was assigned to attack the uh, the town directly, which sat back in a hollow in the woods. Uh, and they would attack frontally. Uh, our particular company would... Uh, go around the and up into the hills uh, surrounding the uh, the town and make sure that there were no Germans up there who were protecting the flanks of, of the those in the in Tulay. So we started out uh, in the, at the, at dark when it was dark uh, we had some tanks with us and we thought I would could get away from these tanks because the the tankers would keep them buttoned up so they could stay warm 
and but they they make a lot of noise, and we think that's all we need is from from uh, from sound equipment that Germans might have. They'll start dropping uh, shells on on these tanks, and they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna knock us out. So. Um, we got the we got the the signal to, to move out, and we were so glad to leave the tanks behind. And they never they were never of any use there. They couldn't uh, in the woods. So we started up in the woods, and as we plodded through the snow, uh, we eventually, and I would say within a within a mile, we came on a uh, a German dugout. Uh, that was uh, roofed over with logs and uh, looked like it was going to be pretty well defended. So we we laid down uh, rifle fire on it, but that was pretty useless. Uh, and uh, one of our our lieutenants, uh, whose name I can't re- can't recall right now, was it Lieutenant Thomas fellow. Burke? It was Thomas Burke. Thank you. Uh, I I had taken a message from the company commander uh, out to the third platoon and uh, gave it to Burke. Uh, I didn't read it, and it must have said to Burke, uh, you know, get going, take this uh, outpost. And the next thing I saw, uh, Burke leaped up and was going to lead a charge, and he was hit right between the eyes. Oh, uh, a wonderful man. Uh, just a shame. Uh, there was no charge. And finally, what we did was what we should have done in the first place, is we got the bazooka out, and we fired the bazooka at the opening in the in this in this log outpost. It didn't go in the outpost, but it struck the uh, it struck the window, uh, the aperture, and uh, that brought the Germans out and they surrendered. Okay. And- we we moved on from there, um, but we we never encountered anything else, and then. Uh, we we came back down to the village, our, the village of Tillet, which by that time was in our hands, and that's where we uh, we bedded down for a, a day or two. Right, and you, you were able to get get your feet a little a little warmer, at least, right? Uh, yeah, we, we could get the, the the key in so many situations is try to get in the house. Uh, so, uh, there, there, an announcement came to. Uh, we were told that uh, since we hadn't had a, a shower for some time, uh, and by that, and the Germans gave up and pulled out a bastone in the surrounding area. After, not after the loss of Tillet, but it was just one of the towns uh, that they had lost. Uh, they weren't going to be able to um, crack open Bastogne. And the day after uh, we took Tillet, they started to retreat north and, and east. Okay. So uh, we spent several days in Tillet, and so they were offering uh, showers. 
probably back at Reims, which wasn't that far away uh, in France. Uh, and, and you so, probably could use a shower. I, maybe the Germans couldn't hear you, but they might smell you, it sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> we probably could use a shower. So I was lucky. I got into the, I was, I got a chance to go in the, get in the first truck. Uh, that would leave for the showers, and I was riding over the left uh, dual wheels, and we hadn't moved 10 feet, and we ran over a landmine. And I was right on top of the mine. Uh, I was... I was projected, and projected is right, up to the, I hit the the canvas top of the the canvas cover of the uh, of the truck and came down and uh, I, I was virtually knocked out. I was landed flat on the on the floor of the of the truck and the other chaps just simply took me by the ankles and pulled me off the truck bed and stood me up and by that time my head was clearing and one of the men said oh my god look at his back and I thought oh Jesus what does my back look like Uh, and so they started peeling my clothes off (laughs) of course I'm standing in the snow Hmm. and they took my overcoat off and there was a hole in it in the back about the size of a basketball and then they they took my what we call a a, a combat jacket it was a field jacket took my field jacket off and the small the hole was a little bit smaller then the my sweater uh my uh my wool shirt uh my my wool undershirt my summer undershirt, and by the time we got down to me, uh, all that there was was a little uh, trickle of blood in my back, and it was my clothes that, that had saved me. That is something else. Uh, and so uh, they said, "Do you want to go, do you, you want to go to up to the aid station?" I said, "No, I want to get that um, shower." <laughs> Uh, so I had to go back to the end of the line, and I never got the shower because <laughs> the, the rides ended up before they got got to me or several other people. Uh, Larry McCaffrey, one of my buddies, was sitting to the left of me, and he took a uh, a, a mine fragment in his right elbow, and uh, he, that was the end of the war for him. Uh, I saw him many, many years later uh, as a civilian, and we had wonderful times together. Uh, but he uh, he ended up with a thirty percent disability. Wow! Well, so that was that was actually the end of the uh, the bulge adventure. Okay. Uh, well, we we're just about out of time. What uh, what I want our listeners to know, Dick Manchester, is that next week you will be able to hear the rest of the story. Uh, Dick, you have done such a beautiful job in in your memoirs, and it's just bringing all of this alive. Very quickly, uh, a, f- a funny story 
that you had mentioned, though, a little earlier in this uh, the bulge piece was you said that officers were given a monthly ration of a bottle of scotch and one of gin. Tell us that story quickly. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, we were um, at one point we were assigned to guard a crossroads, um, and the the. The, the fog had come down. It was so thick. And we thought, uh, and across uh, uh, our road, there was a three-inch towed gun, which seemed to consist of our, anti, our anti-tank protection. And those fellows that soon left with the anti-tank gun anyway. Uh, so we would rotate. Uh, we would, uh, each of us would take a, a two-hour shift, and we'd stand outside the this house that the uh, the company commander uh, had commandeered, and uh, then we would go back in, and we'd get a chance to to take some sleep. But to get from where we were staying out to the front door, we had to. We had to walk through where the uh, Captain Daw was sleeping, and it, it turned out it was he had brought with him uh, the officer's ration, monthly ration of one bottle of gin and one bottle of scotch, and uh, he was sound asleep and must have sampled both of them because every time we moved to that room, we stopped and, and t- took a drink of either gin or scotch or both, and then went out for our guard duty. And the next morning, Captain Dog got up, and he said, you know, I didn't think that I drank that much last <laughs> night. <laughs> oh, Dick Manchester, this is just awesome. Now, this is half of the story. Next week, we're going to have the other half. Uh, this is Kim Munson with the AmeriChicks World War II Project. Great interview with you, Dick Manchester. And to our listeners, be sure to tune in next week. Thank you so much. Join us next time for the World War II Project and your host, the AmeriChick, Kim Munson. Until then, keep saluting the greatest generation.